Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. All right, so let's get, uh, get into what is the plan today is to finish the first commandment, okay? So I'm putting everybody on notice, right? But we'll see. We'll see what happens on that. All right, so uh, remembering again that the first commandment has to do with you shall have no other gods before me. That's, that's the uh, thing that we started with. But one of the things that I think really generated a lot of conversation last week was the, one of the sort of popular, I use that word sort of generically, but one of the sort of common perspectives that a lot of people today take toward God and then by a sort of extension take toward uh, the church is this idea that I can have my spirituality, I can have my relationship with God, and I, I, and I can do it without having anything to do with the church. And the, the, the popular phrase is organized religion, okay? And so we talked a lot about that last week. And one of the things that occurred to me is, from last session, is Christians who highly benefit, who highly value the benefits of organized religion have a hard time understanding those that don't. I think there is a huge disconnect between those that, that, that accept and see the value of so-called organized religion and then those that don't, I think there's this big, there's this big divide. And t- when big divides occur, then very often what also happens is that we, it's like we're talking two different languages. It's like there's two different cultures that are speaking to each other and there is a big disconnect. So one of the, one of the thoughts I had is, in terms of those of you that are here who I hope value organized religion, I mean, the assumption I would make is that you would, that that would be part of your life. What do you see as the benefits of that? What, why is it, why is it important to you? There's a sense of comfort in knowing that someone, when you're down, a lot of times, the only people that will come around yeah. are people who value yeah. what you value. Okay. So it makes it, it makes it, you always have a fallback, and you always know you can pick up the phone and say, we're going through a problem, would you help me pray it through? Okay, so there's a, a community maybe is a way of saying that, and it's, it's, a tr- it's a community in the sense of there's an actual body of human interactions. Okay, yeah, that's a good, good benefit. What else? Benefits. Pardon? Friendships. I mean, even on just simply a social level, you would have that. Again, it would be human to human. It wouldn't be me talking and being having a friend that lives in another state and we only relate on online. I mean, you can do that, but it's a human to human. Okay. What else? The aspect of need. In other words, we need others in our lives to be. Okay. So there's a way to do that. Now, again, people that would say, well, I have my relationship with God without organized religion. They get it other ways. Okay. I volunteer in the community and I am part of the Elks or the Kiwanis or the Rotary or whatever. And those are all legitimate. But, you know, interestingly enough, those groups could be sort of uh, categorized as highly organized, you know? I mean, everything kind of is high, but that's a good point, okay? Serving, what else? Benefits. Uh, accountability. accountability? Yikes. What is that? What do you mean by that? Well, if you don't have organized religion, you can just believe whatever you want. Yeah. And, you, and even, um, even groups that don't have a hierarchy in the religion, Yeah. They just follow their leader. The leader says, I'm God, have sex with me, drink the poison. They do. Yeah. There's no accountability. There's sure. no checks and balances. There's no okay. Way. So it sort of suggests that we all maybe by nature yearn to belong to something greater than ourselves. 
And so that's one of the things that organized religion can, uh, can do for you. It, kind of thinking of this maybe from just simply kind of Lutheran perspective too, is that it is in the context of our organized religion that we get the sacraments. Pretty hard to get baptism and communion if you're going to reject organized religion. Now, that's not to say that if I'm a shut-in, you know, shut-ins, that's a little different gig. But in that sense, with shut-ins, what do we do? We take the sacrament to them. So, and what's interesting about that is, to me, is that I would, I, I, probably if I said 100%, that's probably overstating it. So I'll say 99.9%, okay? 99.9% of every single shut-in call that I have ever made in 28 years or however long I've been doing this, they miss church. They say to me continually, I wish I could be there. They miss it. And maybe to some degree, when we get later in life and things are kind of breaking down and you can't get around as much as you used to and you can't get there as like you used to, maybe that's when the awareness of the value of it becomes way greater than it does when I'm still mobile and I can get around and, you know, do what I want and all that kind of stuff. And maybe that's just a good thing in the sense that we, that the realization of my need for it eventually shows up later. Okay. So anyway, okay. One more thought on this. Yeah. For me, it's a focused worship, a focused worship. Yes. Yes, it's, it's kind of like the, the week just doesn't go right if I haven't started it out. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh, like something's missing. Right. Yeah, yeah. And some of that is that sort of rhythm of that. We're going to get into that somewhat when we talk about the third commandment, which I think we're going to be doing next year sometime. So, uh, but, but that's what that is, is that... Uh, the rhythm of work and rest, rest and work, work and rest. And so how you create that rhythm and then maintain that rhythm. And then when you get out of that rhythm, you, you kind of walk around and you go, oh, you know, it just doesn't feel right. Like, you know, it just doesn't, things aren't happening right. And it's not that it's a curse or anything. It's just you got out of rhythm. Okay. So we'll be, that's a great point. One of the things that Philip talked about last week Yes, Phil, I do listen to you, all right, <laughs> is that, you know, that sometimes the people who are opposed to organized religion will often have some cr critique of us. And it occurred to me that it might be a fair thing to also be able to ask the question of what might be some of the legitimate, I don't know, criticisms or just a critique that of the traps that sometimes we fall into in organized religion, which then I think to some degree we have earned the, uh, the criticism and perhaps it's a bit of a call to repentance for us as well who maybe find a little bit too much security in organized religion. Have you, uh, do you have some sense of that, what some critiques might be? Oh, Amanda, yes, thank you. <laughs> when, whenever you have a human leading other humans, there's always going to be that human nature, that human um, inability to not sin at least a couple times in your life yeah. To, yeah. to get in the way of that. Yes. Um, so... It, there's been a, many times in my life personally yeah. I have experienced that in churches where someone in the church or even someone in charge of the church yeah. um, has done something that hurt another person. Yes, yes. It, and, and so I think the answer to that is we will wipe out all human leadership <laughs> of the church. Yeah, but you're exactly right. I think that that's oftentimes what the world of people who say, I just want to relate to God. I don't want to relate to the church. I think what they either are looking at the more public kinds of things that we're seeing in the news a lot now with, and by the way, this isn't just an issue in the Catholic church. This is an issue in Protestant churches as well. It just hasn't come to light as much. All right. But the whole abuse thing and, and, uh, 
uh, taking advantage of kids and things like that. So it's easy to point fingers at, at others, but, uh, you know, we need to be aware of the fact that this kind of stuff goes on in, in Protestant churches as well. But the point being that when it happens, then that's often another sort of notch in the belt as to why somebody says, well, then I don't want to have anything to do with anything that's humanly led. I'm just going to relate to God. And so there's some legitimacy to that concern. Yeah, Carl. Some article this morning in the news uh, by a pastor that wrote a book called Quit Church. Quit Church? And, yeah. And his point is you need to get all in. Either, either you're all in or you're, all, or you're not. And his point, he gave a couple statistics, and I'm looking at it right now. It says only 39% of active believers consider the Bible as literal word of God. Now, yeah. a lot of, you know, a lot of 60 plus percent, the reason nothing bothers. Right. Uh, 20 percent uh, of professing believers follow biblical giving principles. So less than 20 percent probably tithe. Yeah. Um, so they're not following God's, God's direction on the 10 percent either. Which you wouldn't do if you didn't believe that the Bible was the word of God anyway. Five yeah. percent have shared their faith with non-believers. Yeah. And more than half of all church members, and we experience that here, uh, attend church once or less per, per month. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, so you can see the symptoms of that then as well, too, right? Yeah. So his basic premise is you attend things that you gain value from. And obviously, there's a lot of people who, if they don't think God's word is, 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 yeah. is the, is word, the deal, is sure. Given, yeah. There's not any value to it. Or they even haven't read it. In most cases, they haven't even read it to it. I think sometimes, too, and I would just simply add to what you said with respect to you attend things that you get value from. It's also the idea that you give value to it is that when you're here, that is giving value to me and that sort of thing. Yeah. Being all in. That's an interesting point. Yeah. OK. Uh, Mark. As it was a question for you, it relates to the in the back. Do you think in general, your experience... Are you asking me a question now? Oh, okay. I'll get there. So, do you think in general, in your experience, do congregations tend to put our leadership, pastors and elders on the pedestal? Oh, heck yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. He asked if, do, do congregations, do congregations tend to put their leaders and their pastors up on a pedestal, I would say yes. Yeah. I, but, but I don't know that that's a bad thing. It just means more is at stake when you mess up. Okay? And I think that sometimes what happens in some denominations, I don't, maybe even Lutheran, I don't know, is when there's no check and balance on that. So if the pastor or the leader has absolute power, which in many dom denominations he does, he runs a church, he controls the money, he's got all that stuff, and there's no check and balances. This probably is true in a lot of rural, small uh, churches, um, more so maybe than it would be in larger churches. But the, the rate of the fallen pastor sort of guy in larger churches is also quite high. So... Nobody's immune from it. But yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, the Bible kind of talks about that. In the book of James, he talks about the idea of let not many of you become teachers because teachers are held to a higher standard. And I would argue they ought to be. They ought to be. Pastors ought to be held to a higher standard. Not perfection, okay? But just, you know, higher. Because if you're wanting somebody to say, I want to do my faith like that. Well, that's not, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on you, but it ought to. And if you're not prepared for that, well, then probably you're not really prepared to do what is required of this job. Is it always fair? Nope. And sometimes it is inordinately unfair. But nonetheless, that I, I kind of roll to the higher standard. That's where I would go. Now, so I've been thinking about some of the things that might be legitimate critiques. And, and we can just kind of, you can do what you want to with these, but this is kind of coming out of my thinking, all right? 
So the first one is that when the church is all about the rituals, but the rituals themselves have become empty. So in other words, we just do the ritual for the sake of doing the ritual and nobody can remember why we do the ritual. And we're not doing a good job of teaching why we do the ritual. It just becomes, this is why we do it because frankly, that's what we have always done. Yeah. So people are losing the meaning of the ritual. I think that's a legitimate critique, frankly. Now, am I opposed to ritual? I used to be. When I was Phil's age, I didn't like liturgy. Okay. So what I did was just create my own liturgy. <laughs> so there's something to be said for that. It's like, oh, I don't like the liturgy and the hymnal, so I'll just make my own. Okay. It's still liturgy. But I have found now that in my older days, as my, everything's breaking down in me, uh, that uh, I like it. Now, there's some parts of it I still kind of go, mm, boring. But there's, still, there's, a, there's a resurgence of that for me. And for many people, that is the case. So again, it, it's not the bad, that ritual's bad. Ritual's good. But why are you doing it? And are we doing a good job of connecting the why to the what? Okay. Uh, second one is that in a lot of churches, their theology is very rules-based. There's not a whole lot of gospel. There's an awful lot of rules about how you got to do this and how you got to do that. And it's a very law-based sort of legalistic view of life and therefore view of worship. And if you're not doing it the right way, which translates our way, then I think that um, what ends up happening is that there's a resistance to innovation and a resistance to maybe some new ways of doing things. Now, granted, change for the sake of change isn't good either. So you have to connect the why of that to the what. Okay, but I think that's a legitimate uh, critique. The next one has to do a little bit with what Amanda just pointed out, is that sometimes in the, not simply the leadership of the church, but also the church at large, uh, in terms of folks, there's a kind of a hypocritical posturing that goes on. And I think that's a huge turnoff. I think people pick up on that right away. That if you're just acting, the word hypocrite, by the way, in the Greek means actor. So if you're just acting it as opposed to living it, eventually people pick up on that, that disingenuous aspect of that. And I think people who look at that, they say, if that's what it is for you, I don't want anything to do with that. That's, I think that's a legitimate concern. And then uh, let's see the last one. Um, Oh, there, I only had three instead of four. So I don't know what you have thoughts about that. Good. Everybody agrees with me. Awesome. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Marty. Ma- I had a moment there. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I think another criticism and having been a secretary of the church and I know I've heard through this, you know, other sources here that yeah. when folks want handouts, yeah. they come in and when you try to direct them to other sources that have either given them a little something then turned them down and then when you say, well, we have needs within our own church that we meet those needs and their first reaction is, well, you know, would you take care of your own people and you won't reach out? To yeah, them? sometimes. I, I think, I don't think that's a legitimate criticism, but I've heard that criticism before. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's get into, let's get into what Anna wants to say. Let's do that and then we'll get into the rest of the lesson here. Yeah. Yes. Oh, um, you tend to in churches, you all look the same. We all look the same. We're white, Protestant, you know. Yeah. It's hard for people that look different than us to come into It can be. It's, it it can, just can be. It's just kind of a human thing, right? But I would say, granted, there are, and maybe we're all kind of guilty of this to some degree, is the discomfort of interacting with people that don't look like us. They don't sound like us. They don't talk like us. They don't smell like us. They don't eat the same food. And, and that's, but that's cross-cultural. That's not just something that goes on in white Anglo-Saxon Protestant churches. All right. That goes on over in India. That goes on everywhere. And that's maybe just kind of a human, human thing. But it's a good thing for us to be aware of, right? That when folks come into our setting, 
for worship, for handouts, for whatever they're here for, that we, we connect, right? We do the love of Jesus. And when you got the love of Jesus inside of you, it's going to leak out, right? And that's what we want. We want, we want to be leaky Christians, okay? So uh, kind of roll with that this week. All right, so let's go now to Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. Now, one of the things that some of you may have noticed is that depending on the catechism that you're reading or the church that you're a part of, sometimes the numbering of the commandments is different. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And so there's a couple reasons for that. One is that there are some listings of the commandments that take nine and 10 and put them together because they both deal with what? Coveting, all right? So just uh, what Luther did kind of broke it, broke the two up and said, okay, this coveting is wrong and this coveting is wrong. And other people say, well, it's all coveting. So let's put them all together. Okay. The other reason that sometimes there's a, a difference in the numbering is that what's written here in Exodus 20 in our Lutheran catechism, that's included as part of the first commandment. But in some other lists, that's listed as, a se- as another commandment, a separate commandment. See, so it sometimes is not because of any bad reason that the numbering is different. It's just that what people have included or separated in terms of the listing. Okay, so for our purposes, we're including this in the first commandment. Make sense? Good. Okay. So the word of God says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, which of the words in that, in that part of God's word bothers you the most? What? A jealous God. That bothers you that he's a jealous God? That doesn't bother you? That does bother you? It does bother you. What, what is it that bothers you about that? It, it's... Uh... I mean, he was the, he's the creator, right? Yeah, he's the creator. Yeah. So what he's trying to get, and, he, and we're not to be jealous. Yes. Of, of others or envious. Yes. Yes. But yet he is. Yes. So sometimes you have to kind of think about it, where you got to remember where he's coming from, that he created this perfect creation who then turned its back on him. So so are you tempted to say if it's good enough for him it ought to be good enough for us is that what you're saying yes i sort of detected that underneath the uh yeah okay so uh, i think the problem we have the word jealous is that feels like a very human thing and how do you sort of apply that to god yeah well it's an emotion and so we wouldn't say love oh now that's a bad emotion but if it gets so you're loving something so much that you love it more than God then love also becomes a bad emotion so the he created us with emotions it's when they cross the line and enter into the sin realm is where we get into trouble so I think that's where we have to say jealousy in and of itself he was angry in the temple anger also an emotion but it crosses the sin line really quick. So I think that's where we get into trouble is saying emotions are sinful, and they are not. Thank you. (laughs) So I'm kind of thinking, what is God jealous for? Us. He, and that's what this is about. Not only did he create us, but he redeemed us. And in that sense, he's saying... I want all of you. I want you all in. Okay. But I want all of you. I, I don't want to share your love with some other thing. And the problem that we have as humans is we say, well, yeah, okay, I got it. But I need this sort of extra coverage, you know, that I'm going to get from these other gods, these other images. So it's jealousy in the sense of that he's demanding with good reason because he loves us, he says, I demand all of the love from you. 
I'm not going to share that devotion with somebody else. That's kind of my sense of that. Yeah. The study Bible says it very clearly. It said this was not a sinful jealousy, but a righteous desire for his people to be faithful. Yeah. Yes, that was better stated than I just did. Yes. <laughs> Makes me think I should have read that before I... Before I did that, that would be a good thing, yeah. But it's kind of, again, it's, it's, it's kind of saying the same thing, you know. Jealousy in and of itself is not, you, I mean, think about it even from a human perspective. When is jealousy activated? When, if you've ever, how many of you have ever been jealous? Anybody ever? Oh, okay, good. Two or three. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> Those of you that had the courage to raise your hands. Um, when did your jealousy, under what circumstances did your jealousy get activated? When you thought somebody, that, for instance, when you thought your parents loved one of your siblings more than you. That's right. You punished me for that. That's exactly right. I know exactly what you're talking about. Of course, I was the favorite, so I really actually don't know what that's like. But... But except for that, the younger one always got more stuff than me. So, yeah, that's probably right. All right. It's when the love is divided or it feels like it is. So somebody's getting more attention than you. Uh, somebody is flirting with somebody else, not you. See, it's when, it's when there is a division. The feeling is the division of love is not 100%. It might be, but it doesn't feel like it is. And that's when jealousy gets activated. Well, guess what? God wants us 100%. That's what it's about. And it's not just that he says, because I said so. It's that he has created us to be like that. And when, he, when we are exercising the way that God has created us to be, that is our best life. It's a crummy life if you are dividing your love between God and something else. We're not built for that. And so, see, God says, I know I made you, and I know is what your best life is, and this is it. Okay? Keith. Now, was this a jab, knowing that the people down on the, on the mountain, from Moses up receiving this, the people were actually creating a golden calf and doing all this while he was talking? I, I think God had the awareness of what was going on. <laughs> And we're going to see that further down. If we actually ever get to the bottom of the page, actually, we're going to actually we're going to explore that a little bit because that's again that the human nature and that part of this is our sinful nature. The sinful nature says what God offers isn't enough. It's not good enough. There's got to be more. That's the sinful nature, sinful nature. I, and we all have it. We we're all born in it and you were baptized and you're a child of God. But guess what? That sinful nature didn't go away. It's still there. And we battle it every day. Okay. What about, I'm surprised that it didn't bother you that it says, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Okay. We got that part. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents. I'm a little shocked that, that, that didn't, did that bother you and you just didn't get to that yet? Oh, there was murmuring going on over here. Yeah. Well, guess what? I, I think we'll skip that part then. How about that? Huh? Yeah. Does that bother you at all? What is it that bothers you about that? None of us does. You want to be judged on your own. Right. And that's kind of what that sounds like is that he's going to blame the kid for something that the parent did. That's what it sounds like. Okay. So who are the ones that are receiving the punishment to the fourth, third and fourth generation of whom? Those that hate him. Those that hate me. Now, who are those? Who are the people that hate him? Those are what? That reject him. Yes. How do people get to a point in their lives where they reject God? They see the actions of others and say, you're a hypocrite, and you say you're a Christian, and you're no better than this one or that one, whatever. So they make judgments about God on the basis of what they see in stupid humans, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, it's true. People do that. What does it mean? Uh, well, let me shift a little bit. Because we see that word hate, 
And we go, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. Hate, that's a pretty strong word. Okay, so what, part of what we need to know is that in the Bible where the word hate is used, and the context will determine that, but here it's not the emotion of hate. Because I don't know how many people, other than the atheists, I don't know how many people actually hate God. But it's the issue is choice. Is I choose to reject or I choose to uh, be indifferent to, or I choose not to follow. That's what it's talking about. And so what it causes us to, and this should disturb us a little bit, by the way, it causes us to think in terms of how much influence do the, does the previous generation have over subsequent uh, generations regarding devotion to God? Could you have parents or a family sort of, uh, sort of group or tribe or culture that could actually um, be indifferent to God or hate, hate in the sense of choose, and that would affect the kids? All the time. All the time. The difficulty here is, at least for me, is that God is a God of love, so how does love fit into this? What might be the purpose of God doing it this way? See, when he says punishing the children, he's not saying necessarily damning them, but punishing. So what might be the... And it's hard to sort of put ourselves into God's mind and say, okay, this is why God does this. It's hard to do that. But what might be a possible outcome of God doing that. Refocus their attention on him. It could. And if you look at it from the perspective of God as a loving God, as opposed to God as this sort of punishing sort of terror of people, right? At least from that God as a loving God perspective, could this create some angst in somebody enough to where they would be receptive to hearing the gospel of how much God loves you? I would argue yes. So from the perspective of the God as the sort of loving father God, okay, how do, how do loving fathers get the attention of their children? They spank them when they do wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way, although that, that's less and less today, but yes. Yeah. Don't waste your trials. Don't waste your trials. So what's God teaching me today? Yeah. Because I went through this tough time. Now again, that's a perspective that you would take from the perspective of God's love. What is God teaching me? If you're looking at it from the perspective of God as this sort of punishing ogre troll kind of God, then you're going to say, uh, oh yeah, I did something wrong and now uh, he's punishing me for it. So there's that, that perspective is what is the key here. He does that because he loves us. Yeah. Yeah, he's actually saying what our parents all said. This hurts me more than it hurts you. And then we all say to God what we said to our parents, which was baloney. <laughs> yeah, Carl. Well, what this, this points out is, is the, uh, the jealousy. Yeah. It's really... To me, I look at what Roman, what Paul said in Romans, and God is a jealous God, but He's a disappointed God. Disappointed is the word. And His punishment, and the way Paul puts it, was He turns us over to our own way. Yeah. And we suffer the 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 anguish that comes with what we do. Yeah. The best example of that is the, yeah, the best example of that is the story of the prodigal son. The father, in his love for the younger son, did what? Gave him the money and let him go. Knowing what? The kid was going to blow it. And he was going to do all kinds of stupid stuff. And probably half of it immoral. And the father was counting on what? That things would get worse, not better. And that would then do what to the son's heart? It would open it up. It would be receptive 
to the love that the father always had for his son. But his son said, oh, no, no, I don't want that kind of love. I want this kind of love, right? So, there, so see, I look at it from the land, through the lens of the loving father, right? And because the loving father knows how I am, and he says, I know you, Jamadi, I know how you are, then here's what I'm going to do to help realign you with me. And that's okay. That's okay. Now, it's not enjoyable. It's not fun. In fact, it's kind of crummy. But that's God in his love does that. And it's the same thing we do as parents. Okay? Same thing. Can I share what Luther has to say about this? (laughs) Where are you getting this from? It's my my Bible. Gee whiz. I'm feeling very inadequate right now, but go ahead. Yeah. The law is a minister and preparation for grace. I like that. Okay. There you go. Thank you very much. (laughs) But now notice what he also says, but doing what? Showing love, right? To thousands of generations. Now, that's not just the parents. That's the parents and the kids and the grandkids and the great-grandkids and the great-grandkids. I mean, of those who what? Love me and keep my commandments. See, at the end of the day, God wants everybody in that category. Because he also knows that when we're in that category, that's your best life. You, You don't have a better life than that. And the biggest chunk of it is, is because you know you're loved. You know you're the beloved. You know that. And when you know that, it doesn't make any difference what kind of crummy stuff happens to you in your life that you can't even control. It doesn't matter. Now, it matters in the sense of how you feel, but it does not change the certainty that you have that you have God's love. See, that's why, you know, for, for the last number of months, You've heard me harping on your baptism and the idea of pulling out that baptismal certificate and framing it or putting it in a box where you can look at it and preserve it, but you can look at it because on the day of your baptism, that's when God came to you and said, what? You are mine. Now we, we would know that by virtue of the fact that he created us. Okay. I got that, but I am human and I kind of need that touchstone. Because there's a ton of things that happen in life that would sit, suggest to me otherwise. Oh, yeah, you're loved as long as you make A's. Oh, yeah, you're loved as long as you bring home the check. Oh, yeah, you're loved as long as you love me. I mean, it, it's conditional love a lot in our human experience. And that's why it's so awesome that, for, especially for those of us that were baptized as babies, that there's an awesomeness to that. Yes, we don't remember it. But think of it this way. Before you could speak, God told you he loved you. Pre-verbal. Way down deep in the soul. And if it came to you, that baptism came to you later in life, okay, that's still a touchstone. You still look back at that and you say that was the day. So when we go visit Rich, who has a hard time remembering a lot of things now, guess what? His salvation is not dependent on what he remembers Isn't that cool? His relationship with God and the fact that he's loved by God, it has nothing to do with what kind of day he's having. It's all about God remembering him. And God doesn't forget stuff. Isn't that nice? And that's what that touchstone of your baptism will remind you of. Good stuff. So the appeal... The appeal of graven images in the form of anything has been in the human race since the very beginning. Now we get into some of these other things. All right. So look at Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. Okay. What was Moses doing? He was getting the Ten Commandments. All right. How long was he up there? 40 days, 40 nights, a little over a month. Okay. The people gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. (laughs) I love that this fellow Moses. 
like he's some schmuck, you know, that, oh, yeah, he just came along, you know. Okay, so foundational truth number four is that one motive people have for making images is the fear of the unknown. Fear is a very powerful driver. And fear can render us vulnerable to doing the most irrational things you can imagine. And then what happens is we rationalize it to ourselves and it makes perfect sense. So these people who were, I think, in some ways very vulnerable to this happening, right? Because that where had they been, you know, forever, 400 years prior to this? They'd been slaves in Egypt, and they'd been exposed to what? All the gods of Egypt. And to some degree, we have to remember that some of the people that left Egypt weren't believers. See, not everybody that left Egypt was a believer in, in the true God. They sort of would have taken all that with them, and then in the fear of what's happened to Moses, and he's not here, he's our leader, and, and we don't have anybody, and we're real afraid, Okay. In that fear, they would have then, it makes sense, would have said, well, we need something to believe in. So we'll just believe in whatever it is that you're able to create. Do you remember how the story goes when Moses came back down from the mountain the first time and he saw everything that was happening and he got kind of upset about that as God was also upset. And he went to Aaron, his brother. See, Aaron was, was a craftsman. He knew how to form stuff, you know, and melt stuff and all that kind of thing. He was like a, like a, a tool man guy. Okay. So when Moses went to Aaron and said, what the heck is going on? What have you done? What is it that Aaron said? I love this. I threw this in the fire and out. And out came this thing. I mean, I'm thinking, holy cow, you know, but that's what happens, isn't it? Is holy cow. Oh, did I just like say that? Oh. Oh, I guess I did. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go right there. Um, yeah, I am funnier than I thought, aren't I? I love that. But you can see where that's what fear does. That's what anxiety does, right? Is that we do that. He did it. And then when he was called to accountability for it, what, what did he do? I don't know how, I don't either know how it happened, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's hilarious. Okay, the next one is in Judges. So this is later, you know, Judges is after Exodus. It says, after that, the whole generation had been, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. What does that mean? They died. So a whole generation has passed, okay? Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. So that was the, the cow gods, okay, the Baals. They forsake the, forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. So they allowed the, the idolatry of the cultures around them to influence their own, uh, their own beliefs. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. So Baal was the male God and Ashtoreth was the female God. So foundational truth number five, another motive for worshiping images can be the failure of parents to teach and live the faith or the refusal of the children to retain the faith. That's kind of an owie, isn't it? If you're a parent, that's an owie. It kind of hurts. But I think sometimes that is in fact the case. That the leadership, the spiritual leadership of the parents, and the Bible makes a big deal about the fathers being kind of spiritual head of the household, that sort of stuff. But I would just sort of make it like parents, okay? Um, the failure to teach it and then to live it. I think to some degree sends the wrong message to the kids. Now, it's not to blame. Okay, we're not going to be blaming parents. That's not what we're doing. But I think there's some accountability there that often gets missed. Now, to be sure, the flip side is true. You can have parents that are very godly people and they 
did everything the right way, and the kid said, I'm not having it, and rejected it. A little bit, again, of the prodigal son story, is it not? So we still love our kids, but we struggle if the level of their involvement in a church or our church or at least even the level of the spirituality in terms of their relationship with God is not there or less there. That is a parental struggle. Okay. So are you hearing me blame parents? No, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Cause I am one too, but it, it also is just an anguish that we often have with respect to that. And I will say this, Given one of the statistics that Carl presented a little bit earlier from, that, from the book that he read, in terms of people's commitment to regular Sunday worship, as that gets less and less, what we see in the kids is that they follow that lead. And that's a sad thing. Okay? I don't know what the outcome of that will be. And some of those kids eventually, like make a sort of turnaround and sort of come back. Okay. And the other thing is, is we don't want to assume that just because somebody isn't in church that they're not Christian, right? We don't want to assume that because again, that basis of faith is still there. That is a baptized child of God. The Holy Spirit's working on that kid, right? And that's the good news. But in terms of the viability of coming to church and being part of a community of faith, I don't, I'm not sure where that's going. Okay. Okay. Uh, foundational truth number six. Other people are drawn to images because it is popular to do so. That's what we saw here, right? In their tribe, their crowd, or their family. Their desire to be, be, be approved of, or their fear of disapproval guides that decision. If you run in a crowd where the norm of that crowd is, uh, God is indifferent to us. If you run in that crowd and you want their approval, then what are you going to do? You'll, go, you'll roll that way. Okay? And that, again, is just kind of one of those things about being a human that we are highly susceptible to. I would argue that that's one of the great benefits of the body of Christ. You roll in a different crowd. You roll in a different crowd. And as far as the approval of and, or the fear of disapproval of, it's not that we are gearing our whole lives around achieving that, but it's nice when you have it, okay? It's nice when we can talk about faith stuff and we don't have to be embarrassed about it, see? When we can come together like this and we can engage and, and, and I say stuff up here that sometimes doesn't make any sense and I assure you sometimes you say stuff that doesn't make any sense, Okay? <laughs> But we can do what? We can, we can, we can work that through. See, you're going to get that in a, uh, in a collective sense way more than you're going to get that in a one-on-one. -on -one. Does that make sense? Okay. So I'm kind of looking at the clock. Think I really want, I really want to take you through the why does this matter and then what are some ways that we can be responsive to those that are a little bit on the prodigal son side? Okay. So would you be opposed to my uh, having one more half lesson on the first commandment? <laughs> I think the timing is right because uh, how many of you are going on the Israel trip in a couple of weeks? How many, how many, can you raise your hand just so I can sort of see? Yeah, so about a third of the class, okay? So here's what we could say is that, that uh, next week we finish the first commandment and then you all who are going to Israel can have the comfort of knowing that by the time you get back, we will still be in the second commandment. <laughs> How about that? Would that be okay? We do it that way? Okay, because uh, uh, I'm, I'm still limping a little bit with my foot, so it does take me longer to get over there, and I kind of want to stop now. But I am limping less, okay? So, uh, so that's, a, that's a good improvement. So this is where we'll pick up next time. Because it does matter. First commandment does matter. And then the second thing, though, is we, I, I want to visit with you a little bit about how do we respond to it. 
See, how do we stay engaged in a conversation and not just throw up our hands and say, I don't know what to do? To me, that's, that's a defeat, defeatist. Okay, good. All right, let's close a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the way that your word speaks to us. And it seems like that the more that we get into looking at it and reading it and studying it and then sort of thinking about it, it just goes deeper and deeper because there's so much of life that is impacted by it. And there's so much that we can, we can gain from it. As we've talked today about uh, the importance of the community of the body of Christ, the so-called organized religion. Yes, Lord, there's plenty to be uh, critical of. There's plenty of things where we fall short. But the beauty of it, dear Lord, is that we come to know you. We're brought to you in baptism and our faith is sustained in communion. And that's something that you give to us in the context of our being together. So, Lord, I would simply pray for us here today that we not take that for granted. And at the same time that when we encounter those in our lives who think that it's only about them and God and and it doesn't really matter about the community of faith, that we would have some patience, that we would certainly engage, um, and that the blessing of however you're going to work through us in that situation, that at the end of the day, we give the glory to you. Watch over us, dear Lord, this week. Thank you for the beautiful rain. Keep us safe um, until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to Messiah Lutheran Podcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe. For links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.